for all round difficulty, it wouldn't rate quite as high as the likes of the Barclay or possibly even the Spine, where you have added challenges of navigation and dealing with much more potential weather variety. You have a much better idea what's coming up with the Oman race. But still, in terms of technical running, it's right up there. I mean, possibly the hardest in the world. I certainly haven't come across anything quite as challenging. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. I'm your host, John O'Regan, and I'm delighted to welcome back Ian Keith to talk about his recent win in the Oman by UTMB race. This episode is sponsored by Great Outdoors and Ian's sponsor, Columbia Sports and Global Running Adventures. This episode was recorded in the new Great Outdoors store on South Great Georgia Street in Dublin. You will find them online at www.greatoutdoors.ie and you'll also find all the recent episodes of the podcast on the website. You can also listen back or subscribe on all the usual platforms. Ian, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And firstly, a big congratulations on winning the Oman by UTMB 170 kilometers. Thanks very much, John. Now, a few years back when we were on a flight returning from some race, you told me of your ambition to achieve a podium finish in the UTMB. Was this result in your plan? It was in a, a recent plan I had, uh, which was that when I turned 50, I decided to try and make myself some kind of little project to commemorate it. And uh, the project I came up with was to try and get on my age group podium in all the UTMB franchise races in a year. And that turned out to be UTMB Ashwaya uh, earlier this year, where I managed to get uh, second in my new over 50s category. And then the, the hardest one of all is uh, the, the main UTMB, it being the most competitive ultra trail race in the world. And I just about made my age group, cro- age group podium there of uh, getting third place in the over 50s category in that, which was a very good day out indeed. So the last one this year is UTMB Oman, and that just happened there at the uh, end of November. And uh, I definitely managed to get on my age group podium there, to say the least. <laughs> Now, the race is relatively new. It started up last year. You were there for the first running of it. How did the first race go? The first race went really well. They really hit the ground running in terms of uh, race and organisation and uh, just what a high standard they they managed to do. Uh, It it worked out really well for me as well because I managed to finish uh, eighth overall and won my age group podium, which I could have counted towards my little project, but I decided uh, to do it the hard way and (laughs) do it all in the single calendar year. But as a race, it turned out to be great, uh, so much so that I was uh, very enthusiastic to come back again and give it another go, especially when they uh, added uh, extra distances. And the first year was a single 135-kilometer race. And this year they added a 50-kilometer distance as a more introductory style and a 170-kilometer distance to really stretch things out. And with your experience, you knew that as the race got longer, you stood a better chance of getting the result you wanted. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's only one time ever I haven't entered the longest race of any given uh, uh, menu to choose from, and that was when I chose a six-day rather than a ten-day, so even that was pretty long. So I was definitely, when I saw they were doing the 170k, I jumped at the chance to get onto that, especially as, uh, and the whole point of the 170k is to... uh, bring in the highest mountain in Oman, which is also the highest mountain in the Arabian Peninsula. I spoke to you briefly last Tuesday when you were waiting to board the plane and I could sense a smile. Were you confident going into this race? 
Well, I was very happy to be going to the race and I was reasonably confident that I'd managed to get on my age group podium and complete my little project. But uh, I wouldn't say I was so full of confidence that I expected to get the result I got in the end, that's for sure. Did you have a list of the competitors taking part? I did at that stage. They held the entries open for quite a long time, even though the 170k version had sold out first. I don't think any of the other races had sold out as much because they capped 170 at about a 100-runner entry, presumably because of logistics looking after people over that kind of distance. So it was only with a couple of days to go that I uh, found the list of competing runners on the Live Trail website, which is UTMB's website for race tracking. And again, they, uh, like last year, they had ordered the, the runners in the order of their ITRA points. So people who are, the person who was given bib number one had the highest points. And uh, that was for the 170k race. And then the other races, like the 135 would start at 1000. And the person with the highest points was given bib number 1001. So you could uh, have a look down and see... Uh, who the likely competitors were and do a little bit of research into uh, what their background was and how likely I was a- would be able to compete against them, which, of course, I went and did. That makes it uh, kind of easy to check out the competition. What bib number were you? I went in as number three. Uh, that straight away gives me a game to play because this happened in Oman last year and also in Ushuaia this year where the bib numbers reflected your ranking and the game I play as a little target is to try and at least match it and preferably beat your bib number in terms of your race position which puts it up because <laughs> three was quite high to say the least <laughs> no pressure no pressure exactly <laughs> now can you tell me a little bit about this race how does it differ from the utmb in chamonix it's actually far more technical than the utmb in chamonix i would rank it as considerably more technically challenging so the utmb in chamonix the, the difficulty with that race in terms of what you're facing into is that it's the most deeply loaded field in terms of the runners who are turning up you know by far the most competitive ultra trail race in the world without a shadow of a doubt uh, where you can have literally hundreds of elite runners all lining up to race each other the unique thing about this is it was definitely Last year's race, the 135, was one of the most technical in terms of, you know, degree of difficulty of the ground you're running on uh, races I'd run. And uh, it turned out the 170k uh, was even more technical again. So that's the, probably the biggest challenge of this. And, of course, the other potential challenge with this race is uh, it's in Oman, so the temperatures can get quite high. But uh, it's because it's in the mountains, it's not... You know, you're not running in the des- sandy desert, so it's not quite as bad as you might initially expect. Uh, so temperatures generally would range, you know, from high, you know, 10 to 15 degrees at night to you could get up to 25, 28 degrees down low in the, the middle of the afternoon. The race last year, you said it was 135 kilometers. Did your race this year follow the same route, but then add on a bit more? That was one of the interesting bits because one of the uh, the checkpoints this year was explicitly the trail split. And at that trail split, which was, I would reckon, about 120 kilometers in, you had the option of deciding to turn to just finish out on the 135k course. And to make it an even better trap, if you'd made that turn, it was pretty much downhill all the way to the finish. So it was an easy finish out. Whereas if you carried on onto 170, you were faced with the one moderate climb followed by that the highest climb in the entire new course up the biggest mountain in Arabia. So it was quite a stark choice, which was really uh, a good psychological trick to play on people. 
Plus, they put a medical team in place at the trip. So anyone who wanted to go on to the 170k course had to undergo about a five-minute, quite comprehensive medical examination, considering where you were. Is that mountain Jebel Shams? Yeah, yeah. So the race distances don't just differ in distance, there's also another degree of difficulty that comes with the increase in the distance. Would that be right? Huge added increase in difficulty, which even I, looking at the profile, underestimated. Because looking at the profile, you could see there was a massive amount of extra climb and descent, about two to 3,000 metres, which is considerable over a, you know, a relatively smaller percentage. So the section that was added on was much more climby. And it turned out it was much more technical again. So the original course was technical, but almost from the minute you made the turn, the degree of technical difficulty went up a, a huge notch. Well, I've got a, a Twitter question in that said, where do you put the Oman Trail Race in a difficulty scale from 0 to 10 and versus other races you have participated in so far? This seems like a good time to ask that question. In terms of difficulty of technical running, I'd, I'd rank it up there as 9.5 to 10. It is probably the most technical running race I've ever done uh, that I can think of at the moment. For all-round difficulty, it wouldn't rate quite as high as the likes of the Barclay or possibly even the Spine, where you have added challenges of navigation and dealing with much more potential weather variety. You have a much better idea what's coming up with the Oman race. But still, in terms of technical running, it's right up there. I mean, possibly the hardest in the world. I certainly haven't come across anything quite as challenging. You mentioned a junction in the trail that separated the 130-kilometre race and the 170-kilometre race. What position were you in when you approached that point? I was in second position at that point, and as I was, it was a downhill approach into that junction, and as, as I was coming down, I could actually see the leader departing his medical check, so at that stage, he was probably about 10 minutes ahead of me. Going into the added distance of the 170k race, did you feel confident of actually catching the guy that was in first place? Quite the opposite, in fact, because the pattern had been that I'd started uh, about maybe eight or ten in the first few uh, checkpoints and then slowly worked my way through. Myself, I was running al- alongside an English runner in the first uh, 20 or 30k sort of section for a while. And there were three French runners dangling out in front of us about two or three hundred meters. And I came to a point where I managed to run off course uh, last year and uh, the French runners did exactly what I did last year and ran off course. So we overtook them without actually having to overtake them. They just ended up behind us. And then it was just uh, two Omani runners in front of us. One guy tired off really early. Then eventually the English guy faded off a bit. That's Alfie Pierce-Higgins, good runner. Uh, He was fifth last year. And um, the it was just left with the Omani guy, but I kept asking at the as I went into aid stations what the gap was, and I was fairly consistently getting half an hour, half an hour as an estimate. So leaving, there's one big what they call life base, which is a, an aid station where you have a uh, drop bag. I came into that about half an hour behind him, but I departed at about two minutes behind him because he had spent. I was much more efficient than him at the life base, but. After leaving that, I could see him making time on me, so he was getting away and away and away. So uh, before the uh, split, there was a second life base, and exactly the same thing happened again. He had probably gained about half an hour on me, but when we exited, I was only about a minute or two behind him. So when we got to that aid station, the fact that I was 10 minutes behind him meant he was still faster than me and still pulling away from me. So I was thinking at that stage that uh, he was going to yet again pull away from me, there were no more life bases left, so it would be interesting to see what would evolve. 
but then again I like we were discussing earlier I'd done my research on the runners and I knew I had more long distance experience than anyone else in the top of the field that no one had gone as far as I had done and no one had gone more than about 20 hours racing so I was kind of in terms of not so much a plan but a hope that uh, you know he would not have the experience to do his pacing right and I might be able to haul him in I noticed from a photograph that there was a near vertical climb that there were runners on it in Voya Ferrata style. Did this happen frequently during the race? Uh, there was two or three points where you had uh, Voya Ferrata type climbing. Uh, going up to the first life base of the Leela Hotel, um, they actually have a manned Voya Ferrata section where uh, there are um, people there, uh, safety people, to make you put on a harness and helmet and... Uh, your Via Ferrata gear, and you have to work your way up the Via Ferrata, staying technically safe as you go. Uh, I would be used to that because I used to be an alpine climber, so I was able to work my way through that section reasonably quickly. And then, uh, when we were on the 170k part of the course, we there on the highest mountain, um, there were two or three sections where there were sort of chain ladders, uh, for want of a better description, and they were. Uh, unprotected and no safety people around but it was a pretty pretty vertical climb where uh, you could potentially I mean the, the chains were there because it was a very steep climb and you wouldn't want to be working it up on your own particularly 140k and on a big huge climb in the middle of the day again something else I noticed in the course description it said participants need to be confident in their ability to cover very challenging terrain will be completely self-sufficient for periods of more than 10 hours uh, there's a significant distance between the aid stations. That was on the final section of the race. Did you find that you were on your own for long periods of time during the race? Yeah, I was definitely on my own, but it wasn't quite as bad as they made it out. Uh, the aid stations, as far as I was concerned, were pretty well spaced and uh, at no point came anywhere near running out of water or anything like that or feeling that if I don't get to an aid station soon, I'll be in big problems. It wasn't that case at all. Uh, they were very logically based apart. But there were large chunks, particularly after I'd got myself into first place uh, where I was on my own. And of course, at that point, when I'm in first place, hoping to defend it, I want to be on my own. <laughs> I don't want any company. Uh, so there was uh, many, 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 many hours of, of running along on my own thoughts and uh, being quite late into the race, my mind starting to wander a bit and you know, nearly getting to a hallucinatory state at some points. But I suppose if you were down to a walking pace of less than four kilometres an hour, 10 hours is only, what, 25, 30 kilometres? Yeah, but the aids, I think I would guess that the largest gap in aid stations is about 10 kilometres or so, so it's, it's, it's pretty good. Having said that, some of that could be over very technical ground, so at times you would be doing quite a, a slow pace, so you could be even, you know, even running at the front of the race, you could be a good two or three hours between aid stations on, on particularly technical grounds. What was the temperature like during the race? It varied a bit. It probably at its absolute hottest right at the start of the race because we're down low uh, in a, a lovely village which we start from. And that was at one o'clock in the afternoon and temperatures uh, seemed to peak out at around three or four in the afternoon, but they'd be quite, it'd obviously be very high at one o'clock anyway. So a long flat run started in and uh, within um, a valley created by one of the wadis. So the, the teeth tends to hold there. So that was definitely one where I paced it very carefully and didn't run very hard because I knew that if you tried to run that at full speed, 
you just exhaust yourself way too early in the race. As regards the rest of the race, when the sun goes down, you know, things become almost perfect in terms of running temperature, no matter where you are, uh, high or low. Up high, sometimes it actually got quite cool because, uh, you know, if you're running along a, rain, a ridge, you might get the wind effect. So uh, uh, for maybe an hour or two, it was, I was marginal about whether I was going to put on a jacket. Um, so and that was, yeah, running high along a ridgy section in the, the first night. Again, when the temperature came, when the sun came up during the day, uh, I was lucky enough that I was on the, the high mountains at that stage. Uh, so the sun produces the heat, but of course the height reduces it back down again. So it was it was warm. Um, I had my sun hat on, um, but it wasn't excruciatingly warm and it wasn't affecting my performance too much in terms of the heat. And then when the, when the sun went back down and... I had to finish out the race in the nighttime. Temperatures, if anything, were a little, just a little on the warm side. It felt kind of humid, but uh, I had arm warmers ready to go, but never felt the need to put them on quite the reverse. Well, I suppose that suited you as you don't like the cold. Uh, it suited me down to the ground. That's one of the things I like about this race uh, is that the temperature is really, really good, and there's uh, you're pretty much guaranteed sunshine during the day and. At night time, the skies are clear, and if you actually look up at the stars, they're spectacular. I was at one point looking at the moon, and it was looking really spectacular. So you had good visibility at night time? Uh, to a point. You had good visibility of anything you could see, but uh, interesting enough, if something was dark, it was jet black. So they have the course marked out extremely well, extremely, extremely well. So at night time, they have uh, small green dots, little reflective dots placed along the course. So look, you can look like you can running along a runway at times. But where there's danger nearby, they'll put red dots so you, you don't run over the red dots. And so what I, I would see the red dots and I'd know that there's a cliff or, you know, something like that nearby, uh, something dangerous you could fall into. But all you'd see is blackness. You wouldn't know what it is. So it's the one thing that is a little frustrating as you know that there's a spectacular view there, but all you can see is the red dots to indicate that what you're missing. <laughs> How did your clothing differ during this race? Uh, I very much put the emphasis on sun protection for this one. So I was wearing a Columbia, one of the Columbia Sun Reflective uh, T-shirts, which uh, have titanium oxide dots in them, which um, help reflect sunlight back out. It's a very interesting design, and so I wore that. I had only test run it once before during uh, our summer here, and uh, I, the way I described it, it was like closing the curtains. It's actually pretty effective. Um, so it'd be a little heavier than a standard lightweight, you know, running T-shirt for for the sun. But it's what you know. You don't notice the weight, but you do notice the the, the reflectivity. Uh, the other thing, I had a, a desert cap with the you know co- which is actually mandatory gear on this race, so that your neck is protected. And you put that on, and it makes a big difference in the middle of the sun. Then just a normal uh, Columbia Mantra running shorts. I also had um, a new pair of runners, which Columbia had given me uh, to test, which turned out to be brilliant uh, grip. Uh, I think they're called FKTs, and they're they these turn out to be superb on the rocky terrain. And I absolutely bashed the hell out of them, and they survived it. Um, but yeah, I wanted something that was guaranteed good grip on the ro- on the rock, and these had nice soft rubber on them, so I knew that the the grip would be well on rocky terrain. Didn't have to worry too much about uh, 
dealing with any wetness although i did get the shoes wet once or twice because some of their wadis do actually have rivers in them so uh, you end up getting your feet wet but they dry out in no time so no waterproof shoes for this one uh, better having the, the full venting of non-waterproof shoes yeah i suppose the big advantage with that is if water gets in to a non-waterproof shoe it can get out if the shoe is waterproof if the water gets in it stays in yeah although in this case it might have had a cooling effect so it wouldn't bother me but in general just the venting would be fine here you know it's uh Definitely a different uh, decision-making to 95% of the races I'd be doing where wet, wet tends to be the problem. And this one, wet's not a problem. It's actually a useful attribute. Brian Buckley, the recent winner of the Kerryway Ultra, he wore the same shoe as the FKTs, and he mentioned something similar to what you've just said there. That's good to hear. Rest periods, did you take many breaks or did you take any breaks the longest break i took was an enforced break at the trail split where i had to sit down for my five minute medical examination and that was the only time i sat down in the entire race uh, even when i was in the big life bases which are the major aid stations i made sure to stay standing up got at my drug got the stuff out of my drop bag as quickly as possible and just tried to get through everything as fast as possible so very much in my case, it's a tactic of using aid stations as the easiest place in the entire course to gain time on people by the simple process of getting in and getting doing what you need as fast as you can, doing the minimum amounts and just get out and get going. And um, what about your gear? How did that differ in this race or did it? Uh, the rest of the gear... Uh, not a lot of difference in this race. Uh, mainly it was the clothing that differed. Um, yeah, I can't... Um, was able to go at a lot of lightweight gear, uh, whereas normally, you know, I'd be much more cautious and, and go for stuff that's, you know, going to be much more robust and res- um, what I'd want for if the weather goes absolutely to hell. But in this case, I didn't have to worry so much. So it was a matter of picking up the lightest thing I could get away with, bar my phone. So I had a really lightweight phone, but I chose to take my own personal smartphone just to have a GPS navigational device with me because if I did go off course, I had it loaded with uh, good maps and the course plot, and I did actually use it once to to check where I was, where I had lost track of the green dots, and I was turned out I was about 20 metres off course. What happens with your phone and the maps if you can't get a signal? I have offline maps loaded on the phone, uh, get them for free from the places like OpenAndro Maps and have offline uh, mapping software like uh, Locus Maps, which will do, uh, be able to handle those. Then uh, it doesn't matter because the GPS signal uh, you should be able to pick up. It doesn't matter if you don't have a mobile signal, the GPS will still work. And how do you conserve your phone battery? I have a very big battery on my phone. It's 4,000 milliamps, I think. So. I would know from experience of testing it out that I can actually get more than two days of use, normal use out of my phone without recharging it. And indeed, uh, when I had it, I didn't uh, try and conserve any power in the race and I did use a GPS once or twice. And when I got to the end of the race after 36 hours of running, the phone was still over 50% of battery capacity. It's actually mandatory gear in the race that you have to bring a power bank with you to, so that you can recharge your phone. Uh, or a second phone so that you always have a mobile signal so I had the smallest power bank I have in my collection because I knew I wouldn't need it and out of curiosity what phone is it? my phone is a Zomi MI9T it's quite unusual to have such a good battery life in this day and age now I'm not going to ask you about nutrition how was the navigation at night time? I know you're a good navigator, but how do you think it was for navigation? It was excellent um, because they marked the course so, so well. 
funny enough, it was actually easier to navigate at nighttime than it was in the daytime. Because the daytime, you have to watch out for green painted dots and rocks, so you pay more attention. But at nighttime, you have your head torch on, and they have reflectors uh, along the course. So the reflectors stand out from miles away, and they're much easier to follow along. So uh, navigation-wise, it was very, very good. There was only one spot where there was a, I didn't see a reflector. And that was I was it was probably the easiest place to navigate because I was running along uh, a dirt road, and uh, I reckon the reason the reflectors went missing is because where there was no reflectors, there was a camel standing by. So I guess I'm guessing the camel actually ate one. <laughs> you were using poles during the race. Did you use them from the start, or were you selective at using them? I had them out and ready to go from the start, and I would have uh, used them from the first climb onwards. Absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the Irish runners, uh, Tony Burke, uh, who was there in the 135 kilometer race, uh, was using Nordic walking poles and he's a Nordic walking instructor and they were talking about it and I was agreeing with him that his tactic of Nordic walking was likely to be highly successful and very efficient. With the new qualification criteria for the UTMB in Chamonix, anyone that completes the 130 kilometer or 170 kilometer race will bypass the lottery and have a guaranteed entry for the UTMB in 2020. Does that mean that this is an extremely difficult race or a very expensive race to get into? Well, it's definitely not expensive. It's certainly, uh, there's plenty of other races around that are similar level of expense considering the amount of distance covered and the amount of logistical support given to the race. It's no more expensive than you would expect. In terms of difficulty, Yes, and I actually like this. I think this is a feature because the UTMB organization are involved. You know, the Pilates, who uh, are the founders of the UTMB, Michelle Pilotti was racing and Catherine Pilotti was uh, around as well, making sure everything was running well. So they've looked over the course. They know it well. So they know the standard. So to me, it's an advantage that you can get straight in because if you... And, you know, I've done now two of the UTMB franchise races, Ashwaya and Oman, and they're both what I would call up the standard. If you can complete the franchise races, you can complete the UTMB races themselves. So I think it's a good thing that there are a sufficient level of technical difficulty that you know that anyone who completes these is is going to have a, a good shot of being able to complete the, the UTMB itself. So it makes sense that these uh, give you... a an automatic entry and if you complete them because you know it makes uh, it from a point of view of being fair i think it's an improvement actually on the old system because on the old system there are plenty of races that on paper have a similar distance and climb but in reality are far far easier than what you're likely to encounter in the utmb and the alps whereas Ushuaia and uh, Oman in particular are so technically difficult that you'll actually find the utm so utmb itself a lot easier yeah, that makes perfect sense. The point system is to show that you have experience of these races and you have to accumulate them over a couple of years. Whereby if you're doing a race and can finish a race that's technically difficult, it proves that you have the ability to finish the race in Chamonix. Absolutely. And that, to me, it's definitely a good thing. I know there's been a lot of uh, talk and controversy about it as seeing as a money-making scheme for the UTMB. But uh, I don't think so. To me, it, it makes actually very good logical sense and it's actually closing a gap that did exist where it was in, in ways too easy to qualify in, in races that did not give you the experience you needed for UTMB. Whereas if you do one of these races, you have, and you'd manage to complete them, you then you have the experience you need to complete the UTMB and you can actually go into the UTMB with a lot more confidence knowing that. 
and you improve the chances of the people who can actually finish the race getting the opportunity to take part in it rather than somebody just trying to cross it off a list and say I've done it or try to do it. Yes, and, and absolutely. And another thing I've heard is that, you know, it's making it uh, with such that people with money can get uh, will be the ones that get in because they will be able to afford the travelling to go to races. But the reality is that you have to travel to go to races no matter what they are. And for the UTMB itself, you need to do at least three races to, to qualify. Whereas you only need to do one of these races to qualify. And uh, quite frankly, the money involved isn't such uh, a massive expense. Bypassing the lottery and having the guaranteed entry will certainly make it a lot more attractive to anyone thinking of doing the race in Chamonix. For anyone planning on taking part in the Oman race, how do you get there? Uh, well, Oman is one of the more accessible countries in the Middle East, I would say. Uh, I've certainly found it a very uh, welcoming and friendly place. I, lo- I loved my time there and no hesitation going back for a, a second go. Uh, getting there is pretty straightforward. Oman is is well connected with. Uh, unfortunately, there's no direct flights from Ireland, but there's plenty of one-stop flights and so on. And the flights aren't too expensive with a, a huge range of choice. That takes you into Muscat Airport, which is a big modern airport. That's actually one of the the best airports I've been in. And the race has uh, shuttle buses you you can pay to get onto, and they will take you direct to your race hotel if you take one of the race hotels. And they have uh, four designated race hotels where you can sign up for a package and stay there. So you can get it all done without too much difficulty. The race facilitates it as much as possible to make your life pretty easy. So all you have to do is uh, essentially tick the boxes and... uh, once you get on the plane, you'll be taken care of start to finish. So there's a shuttle bus from the airport out to the race hotel? Out to the race hotel, and there's shuttle buses that run from the race hotels to the start line and to the finish line and so on, and there, and to the race registration. So there, you're no matter which of the race hotels you're staying in, you'll be taken care of. Of course, you could also hire a car and just be self-sufficient and stay anywhere you want. I know a few people who are doing the 50K certainly did that because it worked out easier for them. Uh, but I've gone with the, the race logistics uh, on both occasions and been very happy with it. Well, that's a big positive. You don't get that at many races. No, no, certainly not. And there are some races I, I would avoid because it just becomes too logistically complicated. Can you explain to us a little bit about the ITRA point system for runners? So uh, when you finish a race that has been registered with uh, ITRA, the International Trade Running Association, uh, you get points awarded uh based on your level of performance. So um, elites, and then for your top five races are, uh, I think they're averaged to a certain extent with degrading over time. Um, So you accumulate up points by running races and uh, then you have your your ITRA score, which is your, your, your running total. So uh, a lot of races like the UTMB and uh, various other races will rank you based on your points. So an elite runner, if you're male, is classified as someone with 750 points. Uh, at the moment, I'm actually not ranked as elite. I'm, I'm just a little bit below. Um, and different races, depending on the grading, will, might, have, might be easier or harder to get points on. And you can figure it out. There are ways to game the system to get, to get high points if you want it. Uh, so I'll get low points for actually winning the Oman UTMB because it took me such a long time to cover the course because the point system see generally doesn't uh, take enough account of uh, degree of technical difficulty. So you'll find, 
runners who run short races in America tend to get very high points because they can cover the ground with speed and they get high points as a result. So the top uh, points athlete when I checked the last time was um, Jim Walmsley was the, is the top points guy. Women then are ranked on exactly the same points, but just a lower threshold for being ranked as elites. And there are benefits if you can get an elite ranking. A lot of races will give you uh, free entry and things like that. Before we finish up, Ian, can you just give us a reminder of your finishing position in the race? I actually managed to win the race, which for me was quite an achievement because UTMB races, you know, they're, it's a big organization. It's a prestigious organization. The UTMB itself is the most prestigious in the world. So I never envisaged I'd find myself in a position to actually overall win a race. I mean, I've been targeting podiums for my age group, but to actually win outright was way beyond what I ever expected. And count, for me, counts as one of the, my career highlights. So I'm ecstatic at the end of that. Well, congratulations once again, and I'll be getting you back in to do another podcast. So we might talk specifically about training or kit selection the next time around, something that will be kind of more general towards all races. Cool, that would be great. Okay, we'll leave it at that. And for anybody that's listening in, if you're enjoying the podcast, you might consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts if you use that or whatever else you might get the opportunity. And yeah, thanks again, in. Bye. See ya.